Welcome to another episode of Bell Sounds, the Pediatric GI Podcast, the official podcast of the North American Society for Pediatric Gastroenterology, Hepatology, and Nutrition, or NASFIGEN. My name is Jennifer Lee, and I am joined by announcer wait, wait, wait. Peter Liu. We're going at that? <laughs> yeah. I didn't do my, it wasn't as good as I could have done it. Next uh, time, next time. But that was good. Yes, I'm Peter Liu, and uh, welcome to the show. We'll have full announcer Peter Liu at a future episode. We are a pediatric gastroenterologist at Nationwide Children's Hospital in Columbus, Ohio. So, do we have any announcements? We have been partnering with the Diversity Special Interest Group lately. Yeah. It was on Twitter. Nice photo, by the way. I had to miss the meeting. Oh, it was fun. They're great. It was, uh, so I think one of the things that we're going to try to do, you know, not just in the podcast, but also on social media, is to highlight some of the various awareness months, you know, this Month, So this comes out literally the last day, but it is still Black History Month. Yes. And uh, so if it hasn't come out already, you know, check out uh, NASPGAN social media avenues. Um, we're going to be highlighting Dr. Eric Sibley. Yeah. We wanted to have him on the podcast, maybe yeah. in the future. He's still one of our targets. Eric, if you're listening. <laughs> so if you check out Instagram, Twitter, Facebook uh, for NASPGAN, There'll be a little bio on him and some of his accomplishments. Interesting fact. He, for a long time, was Dr. DiLorenzo's roommate at every conference. Ooh. Isn't that weird? No. No, I mean, it's not weird to have a roommate. It's like, anyways, interesting. That particular person. Yeah, it's crazy. I've never met him. Have you? No, I have not either. Oh. So apparently they're roommates until they both got too famous to share a room anymore. Oh, paparazzi. Uh, or like people started giving them free rooms. I don't know how that works. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah. One day, one day we'll get free rooms yeah, too. Yeah, one day. Um, today we're going to talk about constitutional mismatch repair deficiency. And this is a follow-up episode from Steve Erdman's polyposis episode that we did, gosh, a few months ago now. Yeah. About a year ago. Uh-huh. Dr. Steve Erdman recommended that we dive a little bit deeper into this topic and also speak with a genetic counselor. So we talked to... Dr. Carol Durno, mm -hmm. who is a pediatric gastroenterologist. She's uh, at SickKids and also at the Zane Cohen Center for Digestive Diseases. And she specializes in the care of children and families with uh, hereditary polyposis syndromes. We also talked to her colleague, uh, Melissa Aronson, who is a senior genetic counselor, also at the Zane Cohen Center for, Di for Digestive Diseases. Yeah. So I don't know about you, but I know for me, my family history review is uh, my skills there are limited i would say so it's helpful to talk to her do you remember too. like the circle the square oh no 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 i just like you know any family history of digestive problems <laughs> or anything you think might be relevant no okay cool i'm just Moving kidding on. i'm just kidding i do something really thorough okay. you know especially cool. after talking to her mm -hmm. but uh sure it was helpful to talk to her yeah all right yeah on to the show on to the show thank you both so much for joining us today to talk about Another episode about uh, polyposis syndromes and genetic hereditary GI cancer syndromes. One thing that is, we are also super fortunate, this is a, a special episode because we're joined not by only one, but two guests, including the very first genetic counselor to be on our show. Um, so yeah, thank you so much for joining us. Okay, well, hello. Thank you very much for inviting us. I told my kids we were doing this podcast and looking at me like, what does this look like? And what are you going to be talking about? <laughs> this is why I have younger kids. So I said to my son, I'm going to be on this podcast called Bowel Sounds. He goes, yeah. like, art? I'm like, oh, no. <laughs> 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 okay. Well, fun fact, the very first intro music that Peter tried to push yeah. through did sound a little bit more like farts and bell sounds, but it got oh, detoned very quickly. It. it wasn't <laughs> that... It was it yeah. was tasteful, I thought. It wasn't tasteful like... Tasteful bell sounds. It wasn't that obvious that it was like <laughs> farting, but anyways. We are going to start with a question for both of you, and uh, it's probably the most challenging question. So for our listeners who don't know you, how would you describe yourself in only one sentence? How about we'll start with Dr. Durno? Well, I'm a pediatric gastroenterologist uh, from Canada who likes to play a lot of tennis and uh, also, I guess, feels fortunate uh, to have so many colleagues uh, internationally. So over the years, developed a lot of really strong friendships with people everywhere. And that's part of one of the bonuses of being in this academic field. 
Wow. Awesome. Our second guest, who's an avid tennis player. First is Katya Kovacic. Katya, yeah. yeah. It's Melissa. I would say, first and foremost, I'm a mom and a wife and a family person to three sons. And my husband, that's four boys and me in the house. Uh, <laughs> I'm a proud Canadian, and I'm a very proud genetic counselor, and apparently the first genetic counselor on this podcast. Uh, and I'm a genetic counselor who specializes in hereditary GI cancer, which is very, very unique for my profession. So that's a sentence about me. Yeah, that's great. So we've been asking for our listeners and really for ourselves. <laughs> um, can you each tell us about a book, podcast, or TV show or movie that you've read, listened to, or watched that you would recommend? Well, I just watched Untold the other night. And just for some American content, it yeah. was about uh, Andy Roddick and Marty Fish, who are two well-known tennis players. And it was actually, a, it was a, more of a documentary, but it was super interesting. And you don't even have to be a tennis fan to watch it. I would highly recommend that documentary. Okay. Untold, you said. Untold. Okay. All right. Yeah, I just on Netflix. Yeah, Netflix. All right. Oh, there's a, it's actually a series. There's a whole season. Fun fact, by the way. Um, so Dr. DiLorenzo, Carlo DiLorenzo, who's our chief, did you guys know his daughter is a professional tennis player? Yeah. Really? yeah. I did not and know that. Francesca DiLorenzo. She, uh, she's pretty great. Yeah. Yeah. Anyways. Okay. She could beat both of us very easily. Obviously. <laughs> very, very exciting this year. Very okay. impressive. Yeah. Melissa, what about you? Well, I have a very long commute to go to work when I'm not remote. So podcasts are my friend yes. and I like things that I, I actually just listened to your podcast yesterday. So there you go. I, I listened to Dr. Erdman talk about hereditary polyposis. I can't get enough of it. <laughs> but usually I listen to uh, smart lists or, you know, Conan O'Brien yeah. or, you know, something entertaining. So John Stewart was on yesterday and it was very, very good. Okay. That's a great recommendation. Yeah. yeah. So let's move on to our topic. And uh, so as we alluded to, so we do have an episode that was released before with Dr. Steve Erdman about polyposal syndromes and GI uh, cancer syndromes, but we couldn't get enough. We wanted more. So today we're going to talk more about this topic. And the last time we didn't talk too much about Lynch syndrome and definitely not at all about uh, BMMRD or CMMRD. These are all very rare. Most of us have never seen a patient with it. We happen to work with uh, Dr. Erdman, so we see it once in a while. But, um, but what, is, tell, what is Lynch syndrome and how does it differ from C or BMMRD? And what are those letters yeah, even stand should, for? What should we even call it? Yeah. Dr. Durno, what do you, what do you think? Okay, so good question. So Lynch syndrome is a, it's actually the most common uh, inheritable form of colorectal cancer. So it's an autosomal dominant condition. And uh, certainly uh, pediatric patients can develop colorectal cancer uh, due to Lynch syndrome. Uh, if people inherit two of these Lynch mutations, that's when they can get a much more severe cancer predisposition syndrome. So it's an autosomal recessive condition. And originally, uh, it was called uh, biallelic mismatch repair deficiency syndrome. And then we had a meeting a number of years ago because it was, uh, in the literature, uh, I guess, complicated because different groups were using different terms. So we've now come to a consensus that it, uh, the name will be CMMRD, Constitutional Mismatch Repair Deficiency Syndrome. Uh, and it is this uh, cancer predisposition syndrome when you inherit two Lynch mutations. Hmm. Well, I have to apologize that our questions had BMMRD on them. You wrote, you wrote them. <laughs> I so. know I did. <laughs> <laughs> All right. CMMRD. Okay. C. Got it. <laughs> Constitutional. Um, and these patients develop uh, um, polyps, polyps throughout the GI tract, uh, but they're also at risk of uh gastrointestinal cancers, but also brain cancers and other cancers as well. So hematological tumors. And as time is going on, we're realizing that there's other cancers. As people are living longer, there's other cancers such as breast cancer that these patients are at risk for as well. And so, you know, you mentioned as, as people are living longer, they have more cancers, but how do these patients normally present in the beginning? 
Right. Uh, good question. Uh, so often they will present with a cancer, uh, often in childhood. They could present with leukemia. Uh, and then a clue that this could be CMMRD is that they typically have cafe au lait macules. So um, there's been a lot more education uh, and awareness. So in oncology clinics, they'll be looking for things like cafe au lait macules. There's other factors such as if there's a family history of consanguinity, so that increases the chances that it could be CMMRD. Uh, but patients also can present with rectal bleeding and have uh, polyps, and these are adenomatous polyps. So it is in the differential uh, for a patient who may appear to have uh, FAP. Um, and uh, th those patients, you do have to consider CMMRD. And then, so Melissa, can you, I know like, you know, probably the family history has a different role for some of these various syndromes, but in general, like how do you, and how should we maybe approach going through a family history with a patient like this, who maybe we find these polyps that are kind of suspicious? What's your approach there? So, um, I'll first just say that Lynch syndrome, it's a, sort of an umbrella term because mm -hmm. there's five different genes uh, we call them our mismatch repair genes. And if any of the, them have a mutation or what we call a pathogenic variant, uh, any one of those five can cause Lynch syndrome. But the cancer risks are very different. So if we talk about a gene called PMS2, I don't know who named it PMS2, but PMS2 it is, that is the most common gene associated with CMMRD, which is why I'm bringing it up. But it also causes the lowest cancer risk of Lynch syndrome. So typically those families present with no history of cancer for generations until all of a sudden a child comes in with a brain tumor. And this is a family with Lynch syndrome going back, but it was the PMS2 uh, gene. In general, though, when I take a family history, I try and do a three-generation family history. You always try and get information for the generation above and below a cancer diagnosis. And you really have to have a pretty good understanding of what you're looking for. So for example, if you're if you're thinking about CMMRD, you wanna ask about features of neurofibromatosis type one because it resembles that syndrome. And so you have to ask about these cafe au macules and you might ask about neurofibromas. If you're thinking about Coutts-Yeager syndrome, you have to ask about freckling inside the mouth or juvenile polyposis, you have to ask about nosebleeds because they can get uh, hereditary hemorrhagic telangiectasia. So it's not just about, you know, your mom and your dad. It's also about what other things, you know, the P10 hematomatous syndrome, these patients usually have very large heads. So one of the questions I ask those families are, do you, do you ever find trouble finding a hat that doesn't fit your head? Because you know, you don't want to say, do you have a big head? But they might have noticed they're always looking for big hats. Um, and you also kind of want to be reassuring because not everybody knows their family inside and out. So sometimes they don't know the cancer in their family or families don't disclose that, especially in upper generations. But they may know someone died in their 30s and they may not know why, but you may be able to trace that or maybe someone with FAP, their parent lived to be 90 with no cancer. So clearly that's not classic FAP in parents. So those kind of hints are helpful and you kind of get, you know, uh, a little rhythm to it and get to know your patient. And sometimes they call their sister and their mother and their brother in the session and it becomes a family affair. <laughs> yeah, that is super helpful. I think, you know, for a lot of us, I feel like it's not, it's not like an afterthought, but it's something I just like got to well, anyone, you know, with polyps in the family and that's like, that's it. So it's, I mean, no, it's not, that's not it. I, sometimes I follow that up with something okay. else, we but understand, Peter. you know, it's a very brief thing. I think that's very helpful. So like knowing what you're looking for specifically, not just asking about a diagnosis, but maybe also signs associated with a diagnosis. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And sometimes with polyps, I'll say they'll know they had a polyp, but they don't, they don't know it was an adenoma or hematoma or uh, hyperplastic. So we'll say, when did the doctor tell you to come back? Did they say come back in a year? Did they say you're good for 10 years? Yeah. You know, we always get medical records in any case, but uh, you know, was there interception? <laughs> you know, things like, did you need surgery after that? Little hints because they don't always know. And then that gives you a gauge. How serious do I think this polyp is? How many do they think it was and so forth? So those are all things that we can try and help our prompt our patients to give us information. 
Uh, I need to throw in a surprise question here. So um, I've also had patients whose parent has recently had colorectal cancer. And when I ask them if they've had any family history taken or like a genetic counselor that they see as an adult, often they don't. Is that something that you come across as well? Or is there often a family history that's already been obtained by a counselor? Uh, So when, when we were originally looking at some of the data from our Ontario registry, about 70% of people who had Lynch syndrome or met the highest criteria, meaning they had the Amsterdam family criteria, were not referred to genetics. So often people are not referred to genetics, but I've also had the opposite where I've gone through an entire hour session and at the very end, the patient will go, oh, also, did I mention I had testing at another hospital? I'm like, no, you did not. (laughs) That would have been helpful. So uh, we always ask people if they've had genetic testing anywhere else, but it's, you know, sometimes it just slips their mind that (laughs) that's what they were doing. Okay. One more follow-up. So sorry. So how long do these appointments normally take? Well, if it's, you know, depending if we have to explain for Lynch syndrome, sometimes that the tumor has had immunohistochemistry testing done. So it's missing the mismatch repair protein. So to go through the family history, explain IHC and MSI, explain what Lynch syndrome is, explain the testing to get informed consent the pros and cons, it could take about an hour before you're, you know, sort of from beginning to end, depending how complex and how big the family is. Yeah. So, okay, let's say we are seeing this patient in clinic or we've done like a colonoscopy. We've, we have the suspicion that they may have some kind of hereditary GI cancer syndrome or polyposis syndrome. Um, so, and specifically, you know, CMMRD, what, what's next after gathering history, maybe taking a family history, what kind of testing do do we order or, um, and then how do we think about this in relationship to testing other people in the family? Well, we've, in genetics, we've moved a lot to multi-gene panels, meaning we don't just target one thing. We target multi-genes, sometimes 20 or 30 genes on a panel. So if you are suspicious of a polyposis syndrome, like someone presents with, let's say 30 adenomas, could be CMMRD, it could be FAP, it could be MAP. So you want to do a panel of multiple genes, including maybe NF1, if that was one of the things on your uh, list to rule out. Mm-hmm. Uh, we might also take closer looks at the tumor. So, uh, for example, that immunohistochemistry stain I mentioned is the is the the mismatch repair protein missing in the tumor, but also is it missing in the adjacent normal cells? Because if it's missing in all the cells, that's a constitutional mismatch repair problem. That's what CMMRD is. So if you're testing normal tissue and there's no staining of your mismatch repair protein, either it's a failed test through pathology or you should be suspicious of CMMRD. And then through our international uh, consortium at the Hospital for Sick Children in Toronto, we've developed functional tests to help because it's never so clear cut. We don't always have a clear cut yes or no uh, result from the genetic test or even the tumor test. So there's other things we look at uh, you know, do they have a family history that's consistent? Are their parents consanguineous? Do they have features of NF1? You know, are there functional tests? And then you put the picture together and we always meet as a team to say, what are we thinking about this family to come to an answer? I see. Hmm. Another like question is, how do you ask if the parents may be consanguineous? Like, is we ask every single family that we see, yeah. is there that your parents could be related before marriage. For example, were they cousins? Uh, About 40% of our CMRD patients will say yes, their parents were related. And that's not uncommon in certain uh, countries and certain ethnic groups. So you have to ask it in a way that has no judgment to it because we don't want them to feel judged or not feel that they could share that with us. It's really important information. And I always say it's, you know, it it does happen. We see it. So, you know, please feel free to share The other question I often ask is, are you from an area where maybe you could have a common ancestor? Like certain parts of the world, they might uh, be related because everybody settled the area. And if you trace them back far enough, they actually are related. They may not know it, but they are. So, and sometimes they know that and sometimes they don't. Yeah. Yeah. And then, so going back, so you said genetic panel. Um, So we have the suspicion, get the panel. So is a a strategy kind of like you get the panel first, see which one you're dealing with, and then... Maybe and then think about um, the diagnosis and then further testing. Or is there any other testing that you would get kind of at that initial evaluation standpoint? Often the tumor and the blood go hand in hand with a lot of, you know, you want to confirm all the pathology reports. You want to do the IHC uh, and the gene testing. And sometimes you get a very clear cut answer. We see 
it's not just that you have two Lynch syndrome mutations. You have to have a mutation on the same gene on both copies of the gene. So if you get a report back and it says they have two mutations, but we can't tell if both are coming from mom and none are from dad, or if one's from mom, one's from dad. So sometimes you have to test the parents to see, is this coming from both parents or could both mutations be on the same gene, which is not CMMRD. So sometimes you have to do a little bit more, but yeah, it usually starts with IHC and the blood work, the germline testing. Okay, hmm. okay. And depending on the tumor, we'll often also look at mutation numbers because that mm. also can be a, a, a key to, to tip you off that it's CMMRD because the uh, mutation numbers are extremely high, it's like basically off the charts. So uh, there's very few tumors that uh, would have these kind of mutation numbers. And then that also has implications for treatment. So um, depending on the uh, scenario, uh, that tumor testing uh, can also be part of the uh, initial workup as well. Interesting. So uh, unrelated, but we, when we were in medical school, my husband's roommate, my husband's Filipino, his roommate's also Filipino. Uh, we wanted to hook him up with Mark's cousin and at a, at a party and they ended up being related. Oh we didn't gosh. know. Like we, Mark had lived with him for years. They had no idea. They were like distant cousins. Wow. <laughs> anyway. Yeah. We, we ask every family, just as Melissa was saying, yeah. even, even just reflux patients just routinely i just have it part of the history you know your, your parents may be married is there any chance you know you could be um related in another way and yeah. i'm always interested like people i think are not surprised at all of the question at all mm. yeah okay so now we have a confirmed diagnosis melissa what is the most common question that you get from families they're usually concerned about the health of their children so will my child survive this cancer because the most common presentation would be a, a glioblastoma or some sort of brain tumor which are incredibly aggressive so they're worried about their kids they're worried about any other children that they might have um, and maybe one of the more common questions is, do you know anyone who survived this? Like, do you know anybody who made it out of childhood with CMMRD? Uh, and they want to hear stories. And we do have people who are, have been living with this for several decades. And, you know, I think hope is a very important thing. You know, you want to give them the honest information about the syndrome because it is an aggressive and very devastating diagnosis. But you have to have some hope that, you know, that people are going to make it through. And uh, so I would say those are probably the questions I get the most. Um, how do you explain like how this might affect them or other people? Um, how does that, does you know, how does that come up and how do you answer that? Yeah, that's a great question because, you know, if their child has CMMRD, the parents have Lynch syndrome. Right. So it affects them a lot because they also have their own genetic condition and they have to go for a colonoscopy probably right away because we start our colonoscopies by the time they're 25 or 35, depending on the gene. And they're probably already around that age with their child, right? So, uh, and they don't want to go for a colonoscopy in the middle of their child's treatment. And the women, we have to talk about endometrial screening. So it impacts them a lot. And also, by the way, one of your parents, one of the grandparents must have Lynch syndrome. And by the way, all of their siblings aunts and uncles have a 50-50 chance of having Lynch syndrome. Uh, and any future children you have have a 25% chance of having CMMRD and a 50% chance to have Lynch syndrome. So yeah, it's a huge, I mean, CMMRD is unique in that, you know, the heterozygotes have a syndrome and so do the recessive, as opposed to some of our other recessive conditions where the parents are just silent carriers. But it's still, even for let's say MAP, which causes polyposis and is a recessive condition, the parents are carriers, but you still have to test all their sieves and the spouses of the sieves to see if the kids might have MAP because everybody can be silent carriers. You don't know. So, yeah, it opens up, you know, you try and uh, help them, you know, inform their families that you can help them write a letter. You can, you know, they often just email everyone and then you get influx of calls from all the kin to say, help me too. Right. <laughs> and that's wow. what happens. Yeah. You can when see think, why having an excellent genetic counselor is so important in these kind yeah, of scenarios. Right. Um, yeah, for sure. And then, I mean, I know with, with you know, sick kids being in Canada, the cost is different, but we did talk a little bit about that with Dr. Erdman, and he had mentioned a time frame by which yeah. certain companies will provide testing for free mm -hmm. within a certain time frame. And so I think it's so important to be ready to kind of start that testing. That's right. Some companies, I think it's 90 days that they have to, and they say, we'll test everyone who's at risk within this time period. So 
uh, it's a little different in Canada where we all have provincial testing, but in the States, you know, you've got people calling from other States to say, you know, I need to get in on this, you know, free testing while it's available. So you're telling me in Canada, all this would be free. Yes, it is. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Moving on. That's a topic for another day. Proud Canadians, right, Carol? (laughs) I guess the other point for the clinicians that's really uh, important to know is that these patients also are at risk for synchronous cancers. So uh, Mm. if someone does present with a glioma, uh, it's really important to look for other cancers as part of the workup. Um, uh, In about 30% of the time, people can have synchronous cancers. That's not something that people generally are aware of, but it's obviously super important. And just in general, so what would that look like? Is it like, you know, so if someone came in with a brain tumor, it's like doing a scope imaging, I guess. Yes. Ideally, they would have uh, upper endoscopy and a colonoscopy and if polyps were seen, uh, then they'd have their small bowel evaluated as well. Mm -hmm. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. So that kind of moves us a little bit into surveillance. Mm -hmm. So can you start walking us through, like, what is the importance of surveillance in in these children? Right. Um, So surveillance is really important, and that's really the reason that so many people with CMMRD are living longer and living for many decades now. Uh, It used to be people would present with a metastatic tumor, and there really weren't a lot of options uh, to offer people. Uh, So with surveillance, we we developed a a protocol uh, about 15 years ago, and then just recently have done a multi-center trial where we followed uh, about 110 patients uh, prospectively. And uh, these were patients all over the US, all over Canada, and, and many other countries in the world. And we, what we showed is that the people under surveillance did much better. And uh, for patients under full surveillance, their four-year survival was about 80% versus patients under no, survive, uh, no surveillance was 15%. Wow. And, oh, wow. and even patients who had some surveillance, so we called it the, a modified surveillance protocol, their uh, survival was 55%. So those are um, pretty impressive numbers uh, showing that survival does make a major uh, difference in this syndrome. You can also look at patients who uh, have their cancers picked up when they have no symptoms versus those that are symptomatic. And uh, so similar results, Uh, patients that had no symptoms who had their uh, cancers picked up either at endoscopy or brain MRI, uh, 90% uh, had a, uh, there was a 90% five-year survival in contrast, patients who developed symptoms like rectal bleeding or seizures, headaches, uh, their five-year survival was uh, only uh, 50%. Wow. So, you know, we had talked a little bit about the importance, but can you walk us through a little bit about what the surveillance is? Because I think you had mentioned several things already, like small bowel endoscopies, but then brain MRI. Can you walk us through what the surveillance actually entails? Sure. So um, brain cancers are the most common cancers that patients with CMMRD are are at risk for, and they uh, develop very quickly. So we know they go from low grade to high grade in a very short period of time. Uh, So the recommendation is at diagnosis to have a brain MRI, and then they should be completed every six months. There's many cases uh, that have shown transformation in, you know, over eight months, nine months, that type of time period. Uh, So it really is important to have brain uh, MRIs every six months. And this has been uh, a syndrome where it's been shown that when you resect these lower grade gliomas, the patients have, uh, they survive. And that isn't the case with typical uh, gliomas. Uh, With respect to the uh, GI system, we're fortunate to have endoscopy that's accessible. Uh, So um, at Uh, diagnosis uh, or six years of age, we start with colonoscopy. And uh, if they have any polyps, uh, they should be removed so that we can assess whether it's low grade or high grade dysplasia. If it is high grade, then those patients are at very high risk of uh, cancer uh, transformation. Uh, Upper endoscopy uh, start a couple of years after uh, the colonoscopy, so about eight years of age. 
and it, it's not clear what is the best surveillance for the small bowel. So whatever is accessible at that institution. So capsule is what we uh, generally use. MRE uh, has been started to be used as well, uh, but certainly capsule is a reasonable place to start. The hematological cancers, uh, it's, we've shown that there's not great surveillance methods there, unfortunately. So CBC is recommended, uh, but there aren't kind of early predictors of leukemia. And more recently, as other tumors, as the spectrum has broadened, the recommendation is to actually do total body MRI. And that's to look for solid tumors like bone tumors, uh, Wilms tumors. Yeah. Kate, I didn't know you could order a total body MRI. It's not something I've ever... Heard of or done. You can. I mean, in other cancer predisposition syndromes like Leifermani, for example, total body MRI is part of that protocol. So it's a relatively new kind of test, but it but it has been shown to be an effective screening test. And you mentioned in terms of like the like how frequently that has to be repeated. I mean, the scopes that's happening like every year. Yes. Yeah. So every year, but it's based on what you find at endoscopy. Sure. So if the patient you know, did have high-grade dysplasia, and you know they're at very high risk. So in certain circumstances, it would be every six months. If they didn't have any polyps at all, a year later would be the recommendation. Yeah. And then as people get older, again, because people are surviving, the more adult-associated cancers like uterine cancer, um, these patients are at risk. So in late teens or 20 years of age is when gynae screening uh, has been recommended. You had mentioned all of the colonoscopies that they get. And in adults, they're now using Cologuard, which is this poop test to look. Is that something that we can do in these patients or they need the full colonoscopy? It's a good question. It hasn't been studied, but that would actually be a, a good study to design. I, we don't know the answer to that. I mean, sometimes these lesions can be very flat and don't necessarily bleed, but that would be an interesting study. We had a patient, there are some patients that they just seem to get more GI cancers. That's the focus of the mutation in their CMMRD family. So we have some patients, they presented at, you know, eight or nine with their, you know, synchronous colon cancers, mm. had surgery had multiple small bowel tumors in the small bowel at different times. And then I remember once the gastroenterologist was scoping the patient and called and said, I feel, I don't see anything, but I'm feeling something. Like when they did the rectal exam, I don't know, I'm nervous. This is someone very, very high risk. And sure enough, this patient had a rectal cancer. So, uh, and it wasn't obvious even through, you know, for a very experienced gastroenterologist. How do you keep patients organized with, you know, doing all this surveillance? And are there times when people don't? But well, not just the patients, though, but like as a gastroenterologist, I may feel comfortable with doing the endoscopies, but I don't know if I would feel comfortable with gyne screenings. I mean, definitely yeah, not. Right. Or interpreting MRIs of the brain, that kind of thing. How, how does that work? Yeah. How do you guys keep them all straight? Well, you need to have a great team. Mm -hmm. And I find, uh, well, I don't, I, I don't know what it's like in, you know, a lot of the children's hospitals, but I can tell you in Toronto, the children's hospital is amazing. And they're a big team all under one roof and they work very, very closely together. What's really challenging is when the kids transition out of the hospital for sick children or any child's hospital, I imagine, into the adult cancer world where the gastroenterologist might be in one hospital and the gynecologist oncologist might be in a different and the neuro-oncologist might be in a different and no one is overseeing necessarily their entire care because it's in different hospitals um, and even a genetic clinic may not be the right place for I'm sure it would be lovely if a genetic clinic can do that but they're not always uh, the mandate of the genetic clinic to remind people about their screening so we do have forms that we give to our patients to say this is the screening recommendation in fact in our uh, we have a very uh, amazing database at the Zane Cohen Center, which is in Toronto, which has run a registry for the last 40 years on hereditary GI oh, cancer. Wow. Um, so we follow literally thousands of people with hereditary GI cancers. And we have a way in our database to say, this was when your last one was due, uh, done. This is when your next one is due. And we can print them out a sheet. But uh, we kind of rely on patients to let us know where the doctors to see us and that gets lost. So really it's, 
the family doctor is supposed to be the one, and uh, hopefully they take this on charge, the family doctor should be the one to make all the referrals and keep track. And we try and help the family doctors as well by giving them a face sheet saying this is all the screening needed. But we also tell the patient, you have to be your own advocate. And the parents in this case, you know, advocate for yourself, you know, keep a list yourself if you can, and be in close contact with your family, your, your primary care provider. You mentioned the transition from a pediatric hospital to adulthood. Can you walk us through like what additional counseling might be important? How do you help patients kind of transition? Well, one of the things I love about working with Carol is, you know, I'll see the patients when they're very young at diagnosis, maybe eight or nine. And then Carol might see them every year for scopes. And then at 15 or 16, she might call and say, you know, I think they need another little refresher now because they're asking questions that they didn't have when they were younger. And now they're wondering about something else. And so she'll end up referring them back to me so that I can have another talk with them as more of, you know, a, an, you know, a teenager. And then they might have to come back to me for family planning later because they didn't have those questions as a 16 or 15 year old. So, uh, you know, I think working with a really good team who's in touch with the genetic clinic is a really important thing because, you know, we have a very, very good relationship that we can go back and forth with each other. The group at Sick Kids tries to prepare them as well. And hopefully the pediatric uh, group will help, you know, find the people to send them to an adult. And you just want to keep the doors open to say, if you have other questions, if you're having it, you know, challenging time. And some of these kids feel like this is just a ticking time bomb. Like there's cancer. Some of them are on their eighth or ninth um, malignancy diagnosis. So they feel like they might need more support, even psychological support. So we work with a really good psychiatrist. And so you have to surround yourself with a really good team of all these people, nutritionists, you know, a dietitian, gastro, you know, the neuron, the gynae, the psychologist to all work together and get them the support that they need. I think it really starts as pediatric clinicians uh, when the kids are super young, right? And, and you start talking about it. And, and as they uh, get older, the kids will book their colonoscopy. They they will call the nurse. And, and you start with small things like that. And uh, even when they're 12, sometimes we'll see them in the office with the parent and then ask the parent to leave. So you have a few moments uh, just together. And I think it's important that the parents see that, uh, you know, the kids uh, are able to take some ownership, even from a really early age. And I guess we we often tell them about like, have you thought about, you know, when you're not living at home, like who's going to make the appointments and and just start putting those kinds of ideas uh, into their into their heads from a pretty early age. Yeah. Now with the database that you have, have you been tracking outcomes after transition? Because I think about some of our other chronic disease processes and how that immediate time frame after transition, sometimes people are lost to follow up or maybe they may go, you know, they go out of remission or something like this. And so stop taking their meds, what have you. Have you tracked that in this population? Yeah, we watch, we follow the families really closely. We've had definitely parents call us with a lot of concerns that they're child is just, they've had it. They're sick of screening. They can't do it anymore. Uh, and sometimes, you know, the real big concern is there's something there. Like there might be something in the, in the stomach, which is, you know, very concerning. And the mom is like, I, I need my child to go in and get their, you know, forward viewing scope or, you know, cause they saw high grade dysplasia in the stomach last time. Now I'm worried about it. And the child's like, no, I just went, I don't want to go back. It's a, it's a lot of pressure for these, um, these families and these kids and everybody surrounding them. So, uh, you can just offer support to them and, um, hope that they go in and hope that, you know, just keep reinforcing how important the screening is. And the goal of it is to catch things early to prevent cancer from happening, to prevent chemotherapy from being needed or immunotherapy or whatever the next step would be. Uh, Catch it and remove it. That's the beauty of the GI uh, screening is you can catch things before they become cancer. You might not be able to do that in the brain, uh, but you can do that in the GI tract. So our goal is to always say, do it now so it doesn't become a bigger problem later. And sometimes that works. uh, And sometimes they just need a little time to, you know, uh, build up the courage to walk back into a hospital and get more screening and potentially more bad news. And sometimes we'll plan like timing of colectomy, uh, certainly in conditions like familial adenomatous polyposis, uh, in certain patients uh, who you think compliance or, or not think, if you know compliance is an issue and will you know, continue to be an issue, often you'll uh, have recommend the colectomy uh, before they turn 18, 
which mm-hmm. is in Canada when they transition to at an adult hospital. Yeah. Oh, wait, they all transition to an adult hospital at 18? Interesting. Uh, yes. Oh. How does it work in the U.S.? It's a provider dependent. <laughs> um, you know, sometimes a lot of people. We see patients till admitting. 21 usually. Yeah. And sometimes you'll see patients. I mean, my husband does adult congenital yeah. cardiology. He'll see 45, 50 year old patients at the children's hospital sometimes. Yeah, it's not. It's not. It's not clear. It's cut not the like ideal that. solution. <laughs> but uh, I don't know. I usually tell people that you know if they're going to go to college, I follow them until they graduate, and then they can so you know, transition one time. But uh, yeah, everyone's a little different. Interesting. You know what I I find sometimes is helpful is you know one on one peer support. So you know when these uh, teenagers go into the adult clinic, they might be the only teenager in the you know clinic waiting with all these people who are much much older than them. So you know it's nice to have someone who maybe has gone through that, and especially in FAP, we do a lot of matching of people who you know, want to meet someone else who's been there and they could say, this is what my experience was like. Hopefully you do a good match that they're pretty close. Um, and you know, and I'll be there for you. Sometimes they've even offered to go with them and go, I'll sit with you. We'll be the two teenagers together going for our parents together. Uh, and sometimes people want to talk to someone who's older. So I've had kids with FAP at, you know, 14 or 15 getting their colectomy saying, can you, can I meet someone who has a pouch, but has a job and has a family? Because I want to know, you know, can I, you know, can I have a normal life after this with my pouch? They can't see that. And so we've hooked them up with people who said, yeah, I've got three kids and I'm a lawyer and, you know, I've got my pouch and it's not a big deal for me. And, you know, that kind of reassurance is sometimes really helpful, especially at the transition part when they're seeing more of the the future. Right. Yeah. That's got to be huge. Um, you know, one thing, so we talked a lot about surveillance, catching things early when they're developing, but what about, I guess this is more for Dr. Derna, like when, when, when we do find cancer, um, are there treatments, like are there pharmacological and, or medication uh, interventions that we can do um, when, they, when we find that? Or even to prevent it. Yeah. Sure. Well, definitely polypectomy is the best prevention as far as the GI cancers and close surveillance when you're for the gliomas. That that is definitely, I guess, the most important strategy. And also, as Melissa said at the beginning, it gives people a lot of hope, especially now to see that there is strong evidence that it does make a difference. Even though it's quite cumbersome to go through all these tests, uh, you can affect your outcome and, and have some control over your life. And definitely that is, I think, something that keeps a lot of patients feeling more positive about what they're managing. For patients that do present, say, with metastatic disease, uh, immunotherapy is the ideal kind of treatment. Because these tumors do have such a high mutation burden, they're very sensitive to immunotherapy. So it is important to be in contact with someone who knows about this condition and has experience with immunotherapy because the typical cancer treatments are not effective, such as certain chemotherapies can actually be toxic in this condition. So you do want to be working with an oncologist with experience. And now we have two trials actually underway looking at immunotherapy and CMRD. And there's even patients that can have two cancers if they present with Uh, synchronous cancers that can be treated with the same immunotherapy. And and that includes the GI cancers and brain tumors, but also other uh, malignancies. While I was preparing for this, I was reading about different things that my people may recommend to prevent development of polyps. And like on the NIDDK website, for example, they talk a lot about weight loss, healthy lifestyle, diet, those types of things. And also what about NSAIDs and, and other medications? Are those things that you recommend as well? Right. So we don't have good evidence. So we've often wondered about uh, like an aspirin trial um, that's not been completed. Uh, um, that that has, is something that there is some interest certainly in, but we don't make any kind of recommendations uh, for, for going on aspirin. Ideally, I mean, that's what the future will hold, that there will be uh, a preventative kind of medication. I mean, maybe it'll even be immunotherapy in lower doses. I mean, we, we just don't know at this point in time, but it's certainly not recommended to do any kind of experimental therapy like that unless it was part of a trial. 
for sure. In Lynch syndrome, for the adults at least, we do talk about uh, the use of NSAID. Uh, there's been some trials and there's been evidence showing that 600 milligrams is effective at preventing cancer in Lynch syndrome, mm. but the dose is quite high. So there's now a, a trial going on that's looking at lower doses of aspirin. Uh, so we tell people to talk to their family doctors about you know, whether they are a good candidate for low-dose aspirin and possibly taking it. And FAP also may have some medication, celecoxib and things like that. That So depending on the syndrome, there may be some other pharmaceutical. Also, no smoking. We always tell people smoking can increase the risk. That's one thing that's been shown uh, in Lynch syndrome for sure. Well, Healthy lifestyle in general, though, of course, we recommend. Well, so Dr. Donner, you mentioned kind of the future that, that, you know, changes you see coming for patients with these kinds of syndromes and CMMRD in particular. And obviously, um, you know, I think with many of the many of the episodes that we're doing talking to experts, you know, the role of genetic testing has really transformed the diagnosis and care of these patients. So a question for both of you. Um, so what do you see coming in the future for patients with CMMRD? Uh, in particular? I mean, I would envision a chemotherapeutic uh, treatment mm-hmm. so that uh, it can be prevented. I'm not sure when that's going to happen, but there's definitely lots of basic scientists looking into this. I mean, there's there's research looking at vaccines in Lynch syndrome, which is definitely very promising. So those, those would be the kind of you know, options that would be in the pipeline that uh, will definitely have a major impact on outcome for these families and patients. Yeah, I think, I mean, genetic testing is growing exponentially. So now you can do genome-wide testing to look at all the genes. So, if, you know, we have some families where we suspect CMMRD, but we can't find it through our multi-panel testing. And maybe, you know, whole genome sequencing is the next the next move for people like that. And also patients are always saying, "Can is there a cure? Can we cure this? Is that science fiction? And of course there's CRISPR, which you can't use right now clinically to cure, but the, the theoretical idea that it's possible to fix a gene is out there. And so maybe one day there'll be movement that we can, I don't know about CMRD yet, but um, one day the hope is that maybe there'll be some sort of technology to correct some of these uh, variants. Okay, so as we're closing, looking back on your career thus far, what has been the most valuable advice that you've ever received? And what advice do you have for our listeners? Having a good mentor uh, is really the most important thing. And uh, often those mentorships will go on for decades. uh, And uh, I honestly think that's the most important thing uh, for a career in medicine. I would say, I would almost echo that, but I would say using the expertise of your team. So I remember when I first started, uh, I came, I was coming from New York where I was training and I was at Sloan Kettering, Memorial Sloan Kettering Hospital, where I was working on the New York breast cancer study and a job came up to do GI cancer. And I thought, oh yeah, I'd like to do that. So I started in almost the first week, the pathologist came to me and said, would you like to come and look at slides with me in the pathology department? And I thought, I mean, okay, I guess. <laughs> and, you know, he took me down and there was those multi-headed microscopes and he would get so excited. Oh, look at them <laughs> using this tumor with the signet ring cells. This is going to be MSI high. And you could just feel his enthusiasm. But I learned so much about pathology, which helps me to explain to my patients about pathology because I've seen it. And then I went to the gastroenterologist and said, can I see the scopes? And then they would, you know, get excited. Look at these landmarks and here's the cecum. And, I, you know, I'm never going to scope anybody, but at least I know what it's like. So, you know, learning from the experts in the field and they are welcome to come to the genetic counseling clinic and see what I do, because maybe they would like to get an idea of how I do the family tree or how I might explain genetics. And they often take us up on those things um, because you're a lifelong learner in genetics and in this field and you're a lifelong teacher too. So uh, I also work with two co-counselors. So you know, when we have a hard session, they're the best people to talk to because they know what I've been through. And they're also the best people to bounce ideas off if I have a challenging case. So using your entire multidisciplinary team, I would say is the best advice I got and the best advice I could give. Yeah. I feel like as Dr. Erman always says, you know, it's it's a team sport. And really, I guess like every single, everything in medicine is a team sport. So, so once again, you know, thank you both so much for joining us. Before we like finally close, any uh, final words for our listeners? Genetic counseling is great. Awesome. <laughs> yes. I love the religion. People know exactly, like if they know a lot about genetic counseling, but uh, it's a, such a fantastic profession. If you love science and you love psychology, 
but maybe you don't want to be a doctor and maybe you don't want to work on a bench in the lab. You know, it's such a wonderful, wonderful profession. And, you know, and my colleagues are often the most empathetic, wonderful listeners. So I, uh, I think everyone should find a genetic counselor to work with. (laughs) I think I'd say that I feel like I've learned a ton from my patients over the years, because often you have a number of siblings that you care for. The parents have been through uh, sometimes uh, situations that were challenging for themselves. And I guess as we've learned from patients, we can make these experiences much more positive. So I'm always, you know, I guess often in awe, I would have to say, uh, what teenagers today are dealing with. And then if you also are gen- dealing with a genetic condition, I think it's a lot for them, but they're, we, we can really learn a lot from them. And I, I just feel like I have so many families like that, that over the years, you really get to know them well and, you know, appreciate that, you know, you've had a kind of a relationship with them. And that, I guess that's one sad thing about pediatric GIs because eventually patients do kind of graduate and then move on to adults. And sometimes I always have uh, mixed feelings about that because you've seen them go through school and high school and different sports and then, uh, and then they go on. So I always say like, wherever you land, just make sure that they send me follow-up letters. Cause I, so we still <laughs> get letters like 15 years later from some of the uh, adult gastroenterologists or general surgeons. And I always like hearing yeah. how they're doing. So, uh, that's been a nice way to kind of stay in touch. Yeah. yeah. Well, I just wanted to say that that reminded me of something that we, so as a genetic counselor, you get to follow them for life. So right. Right. doing more than 20 years. So some people I met really young and now that they're ready for a family, what's interesting is they face challenges their parents maybe didn't. So what they'll say is, my parents didn't know they had a genetic condition when they had me. They just had me, and I'm glad that I'm here. But I may knowingly have a child and knowingly pass something down, and I have to figure out how to resolve that. So it is interesting to see that whole journey uh, you know, from beginning diagnosis to like teenage years to ready to have a family. And then sometimes even testing their kids and finding out their kids don't have the syndrome and we have a big party in the office together. So it's, it's a nice full circle that we get to see. Yeah. And then Melissa, you can keep Dr. Derno updated on how things are going. <laughs> yeah. It's like this wonderful team. Yeah. <laughs> Awesome. Well, this was a really great episode. Thank you both so much for taking the time to join us. Take care. Take care. (laughs) Thank you for inviting us. This was great. Yeah. Thank you both so much. If you don't already, be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at at Balsounds and on Facebook at at Pediatric GI Podcast for the latest news and updates on upcoming episodes. If you like what you heard and want to support the podcast, it would really help us out if you did one or all of the following three things. One, tell one person about the podcast. Two, leave a review on Apple Podcasts to help others discover our podcast. And three, on our Buzzsprout page, there's a link to support the show by making a donation to the Naspigan Foundation. You can also get there through www.naspgha.n.org. The money you donate helps support some of the amazing things the foundation is doing, including supporting pediatric GI research and public education programs. As always, the discussion, views, and recommendations of this podcast are the sole responsibility of the hosts and guests and are subject to change with advances in the field. Bye. Bye. Bye for now. Announcer voice? Yeah. Can you do an announcer saying bye? Bye. (laughs) All right. We're done. (laughs) 